Welcome back to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly. Co-hosting with me on the episode today is Rodrigo Gordillo, president at Resolve Asset Management Global. Rodrigo, how you doing? Doing great, Pierre. How you doing? Good, good. Great to see you. Our very special guest, as you can probably surmise by now, is Dave Nadig, CIO at Vetify's ETFdatabase.com or ETFDB.com and ETFtrends.com. Close. Close. I got to say, I'm not not a chief investment officer anymore. I haven't had that. I'm actually a financial futurist, which is the world's most ridiculous title. But so I had to make sure we got that right. (laughs) I like futurists uh, should have. Otherwise, uh, you know. I like your your seriously tag on your your Twitter handle. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, ever since Guy Kawasaki became chief evangelist for Apple in the 90s, it's been all downhill. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So welcome back, Dave. Um, it's great, great to see you again and great to have you on again. Well, thanks for having me. It's certainly plenty to talk about, huh? There sure is. I, I, I feel, you know, I think we're really lucky to get you on at this exact moment in time. Uh, you know, we're, we're the third week of March. Um, lots of stuff has happened, broken uh, the last couple of weeks, the last three weeks or so. Um, Dave, I think by now most people in the business know who you are. But for those who don't, I'd like to introduce you, uh, and then we'll get started. Um, Dave Nadig is a trailblazer in the ETF sector, currently serves as the financial futurist for both ETF Trends and ETFDB.com or ETF Database, boasting a quarter century of experience in the ETF industry. Dave Nadig's most recent role was managing director of ETF.com, where he played a crucial role in the company's growth and offered insightful commentary for over 10 years. And prior to that, he managed mutual funds at the emerging company, metamarkets.com, and held a managing director position at Barclays Global Investors during the 90s. Widely sought after by media and institutions for his expertise, Dave has dedicated more than two decades to researching, reporting, and analyzing the investment management industry. He's also co-authored the authoritative book on ETFs, A Comprehensive Guide to Exchange Traded Funds, published by the CFA Institute. So stand by. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Dave, welcome again. I, I, uh, it's really, really great to catch up with you. This is a, uh, uh, an incredible time, I think, to get a chance to talk to you and catch up with you, get your views. I thought for our conversation today, and I know Rodrigo's got some, some questions uh, and subject matter that he wants to bring up with you. But I thought it would be great for you to weigh in on the topic of the future of finance, uh, the roundtable dialogue you led at the most recent exchange conference in Miami, uh, what, about a month ago? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. It was uh, February, February 8th, um, and uh, put that together with um, Resolve's Adam Butler. Uh, it was a big part of putting that together, and Tom Morgan from Sapien Capital, Uh, Really, the sort of the genesis of that was conversations between the three of us trying to figure out what we believed to be true about the state (laughs) of capitalism, the state of investing. And it turned out it was pretty difficult to come up with common ground. Uh, And what common ground we could come up with was not necessarily all Pollyanna. I think we all had some pretty significant concerns. Yeah, well, I I would say that it was quite 
I would say that it was quite prescient, to say the least, given what happened immediately after you did that. Um, <laughs> you know, what's happened in the last three weeks with the Fed-induced bank failures at SVB and Credit Suisse last week. So given what's happened in the last couple of weeks with the Fed-induced bank failures at SVB and Credit Suisse last week, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's not surprising something broke. Uh, I'm not going to say I was a genius and called any of these individual things that broke. But I think many of us had this sneaking suspicion that we were going to break something because we were trying to change the operating system of capitalism in real time on the fly ever since really the start of the pandemic. And you could argue really ever since the GFC. And and we all knew that something was going to break. What I think the the panel we really tried to to articulate uh, this sense that we live in a big, complex world and we have a lot of things that we know are broken, that we know are problems, whether it's wealth inequality, whether it's capital formation, what I, you, you name it. We, we have more than enough crises to go around. Pick your favorite one. But what we really do now understand is that all of them are interconnected. And that's where this term polycrisis comes from that tends to get beaten around quite a bit. And the idea there is that we have too many things that we could possibly model to keep track of. And therefore, what does a financial advisor do? What is somebody whose job it is to pay attention to where value and power in the economy are moving around? What is their job when faced with that level of uncertainty, the kind of uncertainty that blows up a credit suisse overnight? And I think the only answer has to be your job is to pay attention. That's really the financial advisor's job. Yes, they have to have a bunch of domain expertise, they need to understand markets. They need to be good people, people, right? You have to be able to talk to a client and get some information out of them and, and help them on a bad day and help them on a good day. But at the end of the day, the real value most financial advisors bring to the party is paying attention. And whether that's paying attention to a change in the tax code uh, or suggestions when you have a life event, those paying attention moments, I think, is where most of the money gets earned in most advisor books. And that's really what we just saw. I don't think it was the job of financial advisors to have magically known to get their clients out of the banking sector three weeks ago, right? I think that's yeah. too much to ask, but paying attention when those things started to unravel, right? Having the sleepless nights when Silicon Valley Bank is going under and trying to understand it, not to be an instant expert, but simply to be there for your clients when they call in. So you have some context that frankly, they don't have time for and that they are paying you for. So I think we've seen in, in very much a sort of real-time uh, laboratory experiment how the value of a great financial advisor matters. Not, again, not because you necessarily positioned perfectly for this or that micro movement over the last three weeks, but because the kind of conversations we're having right now about what does it mean for cash? What does it mean for the bond market? How do we think about capital formation? Do we have to worry about, uh, you know, a moral hazard and too big to fail? Those are important conversations, even if you're not a policymaker, because they change how you think about your investment portfolio and the kind of actions you're going to take going forward. So when you say, Dave, that you need to pay attention, really, it's pay attention to be able to connect more at a human level with your clients. I mean, you haven't said anything about the portfolio construction. You're merely talking about make sure that they understand, you understand what's going on so that you can get them to stick to whatever plan you have in, in, a, in an educated manner. Is that basically what yeah, I'm, yeah. absolutely. Look, certainly there are financial advisors out there who had wealthy clients who had $2 million bank balances at SVB. 
they had a very different weekend than the rest of us did, right? Yeah, because right. they had legitimate things. They Their clients were calling them thinking they had lost a million and a half or a million and three quarters dollars that wasn't insured. Everybody who was outside of that looked at that. And I don't think a single rational human being in the United States thought the SVB retail depositors were going to get wiped out. We all knew that was not going to be the end case. The capitalist system is very good at protecting the capitalist system. So it always rides to the rescue to protect its own. It's exactly what happened. But being able to have that conversation on Monday morning or send out that note Monday morning to your whole client list saying, hey, by the way, we took a quick look at our portfolio. Our maximum exposure to financials is 3%. We have no direct exposure to SVB. We own some broad ETFs that have 10 basis point exposure to Credit Suisse. And here's our basic positioning. Hasn't really changed. We're looking at cash alternatives. To be able to write that note and have that good experience with a client does not require you to be a banking expert. It requires you to pay attention and know how to write the note. Right. Look, yeah. I, I got to say that it's, um, it's certainly what people need. And it, in this complex world where you can't really figure out all the unique intricacies of every aspect, when it does happen, you need to dig down deep, get there fast, and find a way to communicate it. I'm going to take this just because this is something that's very acute that I'm feeling right now with, like, with, the, <laughs> with the new marketing rules in, with, in the U.S. That, that's become a hell of a lot more difficult for advisors to be uh, to pay attention and then provide context for clients fast enough for them to, to receive the information on hand. So, you know, I'm just curious, to, what do you think about the new marketing rules and whether that's generally helping or hindering the ecosystem? For the most part, look, I don't think there's anything written in the rules that is magically awful and is is by itself, like there's nothing written where I can say, aha, that is evil and should be excised. This is just this cascade of unintended consequences that's leading to a hyper-compliance culture, particularly in the U.S. investment market, where you can point to any individual part of that hyper-compliance culture and say, I understand why that's there. You go look at FINRA's enforcement log for the last quarter, it's full of stuff that violated the marketing rule. People out there promising 5,000% performance for eight weeks in a row with bogus charts. I mean, really egregious violations. So the rules exist because there are, in fact, uh, either the bad actors on the fringe or more often just the incompetent actors on the fringe who don't bother to do things like update a prospectus for eight years or something like that. And these rules are designed to have some teeth to go after those genuine bad actors. But guys like you, guys like, frankly, almost everybody in the ETF industry I know, and most advisors are looking at these rules and their compliance departments or lawyers or you know co-partners in their small firm come to the conclusion, well, I guess we shouldn't say anything about anything. And I understand how you get there. Now, I think the reality is we haven't seen any advisor where any fund sort of sued out of existence because they came out after a big event and said, hey, by the way, here's our take on what's going on. When we see those enforcement actions, it's because then there's something like, and we have the perfect strategy to make you a billion dollars, and then that guy gets fined. Yeah. So I, I feel your pain, but it's very hard for me to look at the actual rules and figure out which one you should cross off the list. Which is a really, well, just, you know, but it really does. You know what? That's, it really that's, does speak to the complexity that we're talking about. These yeah. these systems that systems upon systems upon systems that have that are trying to, you know, uh, either create brand new ways of looking at things or patch up 
the, the, the problems with the old systems that create a more complex environment where, you know, as an advisor, you kind of have to navigate that and use your own judgment, right? One of the things you said is, are you, is the Fed, is the Fed, is the, are the regulators going to look at that piece and actually fine you for that? That's a question right. you have to ask yourself. What's more important, right? Is it communicating and doing the right thing in the right uh, manner for your clients in a way that's compliant in the grand scheme of things, in the spirit of the law, rather than being so nitpicky that your choice is to not communicate at all, which we're seeing a lot of, right? But yeah. What, and, what, what and, you and, described, Dave, is, is actually pretty much the, um, the Canadian landscape. I mean, you know, Canadian advisors have had, you know, basically been handcuffed forever uh, as far as what they can say in their marketing, but, but they're, they're not handcuffed from, you know, writing a communicate, you know, communicate to clients, writing a, a note to clients explaining, you know, what's happened, what their exposure is. It's not about returns. It's about, it's about, you know, putting your client's mind at rest, being able to interpret the events and put something down in writing that clients can read and say, oh, okay, it's not as bad as I, you know, sp spent the last three sleepless nights thinking. Yeah, I, I think there's some middle ground here. I think, uh, I, I certainly think that many firms, and Rod, I'm not pointing fingers at you all, but like, I think many firms take a hyper-conservative approach because frankly, it's the easiest answer, right? If you decide as an advisory firm, you are never going to publish anything in your marketing brochure other than what's on the website, which you did once, Guess what? You've made your life easier. Now, to your to your point, Pierre, like whether that means you can't make a phone call on a Monday morning, whether that means you can't send an email that only goes to clients and therefore is not necessarily the same as marketing material that's public. There's a lot of nuance there. And I do believe they're actually pretty straightforward paths for folks that want to have those communications. We can all point to advisors all over the United States and some in Canada that publish quite frequently on market issues, on political issues, on what they're seeing. Um, and they do that because they set up regimes that allow them to do that. Setting up those regimes is also not free and it's also yeah. not easy. So although that appearance of freedom comes with some investment generally that those firms have made to carve out rules that they believe keep them in the clear, that's a lot to ask a small RIA that's just a shingle though, right? And so inevitably those RIAs partner with somebody else to outsource that level of compliance. And the answer there is always gonna be lock it down. And so I, I think it's not a great situation, but I don't have magic secret sauce for it. I think the short answer is find ways to communicate with your clients that you're comfortable with. If that means making phone calls, make phone calls. Well, look, yeah. if the vast I mean, majority of your, <clears throat> of your competition chooses to not say a word and not do the hard work, and then you have a leg up, right? If, if indeed the value of the advisor these days in these complex markets is to be able to communicate quickly and efficiently and effectively, and you're able to figure out a way to do that, which I think you can. I think you can figure out a way to get the right compliance partners and partners to, to agree this is how we're going to communicate and this is how we're going to make, if there's a fast communication we need to, to put together, we should do it and this is how. If you have that roadmap, roadmap laid out, you have a comparative and so that, yeah, is, and, that is the value there. Right? And, and we all know RIAs. I mean, you guys are an example of this, actually, Rod. Like, you guys do podcasts. You're doing this right now. We are talking about this. You found a forum in which you feel comfortable doing this. You may not feel comfortable putting it in an ad, but for whatever reason, in this live environment, if I ask you a question, what you think about the bond market, you're not going to say no comment because you're comfortable <laughs> with this environment. And yeah. I think that's the trick for every advisor. You have to find the environment that you're comfortable in, that your compliance department's comfortable in, and that feels like a natural way of communicating. 
Yeah. I mean, I think for advisors, it's, you know, if, if, it, if they're in a situation like we are right now, having a, a recorded conversation, you know, you can turn around and say, well, I, I can't answer that question, but I will put it this way. You know, I will, let me, right. let me put it to you another way. And, but it's been quite a debate, hasn't there? I mean, the last week about, you know, the blame game and responsibility, uh, you know, first of all, the ridiculous notion that depositors need to analyze their banks before they, you know, leave uninsured deposits in bank accounts, um, was, was thrown, you know, tossed around quite a bit this week, uh, which, which is ridiculous in a way that, that if the banks, if, if, you know, if individual depositors or companies have to, you know, do a balance sheet assessment before they decide, you know, let's put, let's put $5 million in this bank account. Um, that implies that there's something terribly wrong. Well, well, well so right? I, I'm not actually just then, before you say that. I don't want Pierre's view on this to, to taint <laughs> my view. I'm I'm not completely convinced that that is absolutely ridiculous. I'm not convinced okay. it's absolutely ridiculous either. <laughs> okay. so no, I'm going to gang up on you, Pierre. So no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. I'd love I, to hear I, Dave's view on that. But so let's, but then let's, there's let's also there's also the debate about who's to blame. Is SV you know for in the SVB case you know no risk management on ninety percent you know uninsured deposits uh, liquidity mismatch with their, their health to maturity portfolio, you know, some people have called it downright irresponsible and negligent. And I then mean, others on the other side of that is, is those who are calling out the fed and the regulators, uh, or which is one and the same, let's say, uh, they're calling out the fed, like for example, the San Francisco fed, where was the San Francisco fed on this issue and, and the auditors, where were the auditors on this issue of SVB's, uh, you know, balance sheet being uh, in a completely disastrous position? Uh, you know, three weeks ago, but what was it? They they audited SVB. The auditors audited SVB four weeks ago now, and gave them a clean bill of health. The San Francisco Fed passed passed over SVB without without uh, you know with the oversight, yeah, obviously. Not- and yeah. and I'm not I'm not at all surprised that they yeah. did right because the the short answer first of all I'm I I hate pointing fingers at stuff I think diagnosis is table stakes <laughs> and like yeah. you should understand what happened and it's fine to understand the motivations that got you there but I I I'm not uh, somebody's wrong on the internet kind of guy so I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing that I think the answer is D all of the above. Right. And they're all interrelated. And that's why this is the thing that broke. It was big enough. It was too big to be a regional bank. It was probably misregulated. It was probably misrun. People misunderstood the actual implications of Dodd-Frank. People didn't understand that being able to move money through your phone was going to change the velocity of money. Like there's all, but yes, all of those things have some level of truth. And there is some perfect fit of that model that will give you the right optimization parameters, but none of them are zero and that's fine. So, so the real, so the real problem is, is how could there be so many associated problems with the same event? Well, right. And, and, and okay. Yeah. the, the, The blame game is kind of a waste of time now. It's academic, right? So, so really what, what, what matters more is what comes next. What, what's the policy making on this down the road? How do things change? Let's explore a little bit of, because I think we start with finger, uh, finger pointing, which is what everybody does, right? And one article blames the Fed, the other article blames SVB, the other article blames the, uh, the auditors. And the reality is that every bank and every organization in the planet has their green spots, which they know they have tight, 
and things they need to work on that they just haven't gotten to, right? When I look at SVB, I look at a bank that was following the rules um, that was given to them, which is they could put their their balance sheet into you know not mark to market for foreseeable future. That may may or may not have been their fault. Could it could have been the regulator's fault for allowing that to happen in the first place, allowing them not to to do that instead of hedging, right? That was a decision that a lot of banks made, not just SVB, right? So if you want to vilify SVB, you got to vilify a lot of other regional and, and larger banks as well. Is it the Fed and the decisions that they made in terms of not regulating? Was it Trump because he decided not to push that on the uh, on the regional banks? Is it the fact that they had five to 10% allocation to VC investing? There's all these things are just, they're pebbles in a scale, right? And they just happened to have, there was an emergent phenomenon which is a group of very interconnected people that had power to say, take your money out of SVB. And then you had the confluence of all the things we just discussed and an app that can that can withdraw money overnight. And you had the well, fastest uh, bank run in the history yeah, of the planet. And, and, yeah, and maybe, maybe, maybe if SVB didn't have a digital app that, that could enable but, that but kind like, of run. Maybe. But maybe, maybe it would have taken moved. longer or it would never have happened. But this is a systemic yeah. issue. And I think, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. dwelling on, on SVB or Citibank or, or, or Credit Suisse or anybody else is sort of pointless. The systemic issue here is, is, is actually much simpler. Like fractional reserve banking is built on the idea of legalized asset liability mismatching. That's the whole point of it, right? <laughs> Short-term deposits, long-term loans. We learned this in fifth grade, right? So it's really basic. The problem is that works when you assume that you can control time. And we can't control time anymore because everybody can move everything instantly. It used to be an enormous pain in the neck to move a quarter million dollars yeah. from bank A to point B. It's not anymore. So we've removed all this friction, very good for society, very good for people, great for cost. And now we're starting to discover where some of the problems are when you remove all of the friction from money and you allow this legalized asset liability mismatch we call the banking system. So what's going to happen? Well, we're going to tighten all that stuff back up because people are going to realize you can't count on people never asking for their money back anymore. I, it doesn't seem that complicated to me. I don't mean to make light of it. But the article I wrote about this last week, I called this the most boring banking crisis ever, not to minimize the real pain and suffering of people who are going to lose jobs and, and businesses that will have problems. And like, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be like sanguine about the fact that real human suffering happens when seemingly anonymous financial systems break. Real people suffer. But that being said... There's nothing particularly complex going on here. It's the interconnectedness of fairly straightforward systems that we fail to project. Yeah, yeah. And I, think you, I think you nailed to... it, Dave. I, I think you, you nailed it on the point of, of the time mismatch. You know, th there's not just a mismatch in liquidity, there's a mismatch in time. The fact that depositors can, can rip their, their assets out of, you know, their savings out of bank accounts in, in you know, seconds. Um, is a mismatch against what's in the portfolio that's supposed to be there for the sake of liquidity, right? I mean, ironically, anybody who's yeah. been playing around in crypto for the last couple of years yeah. knows all about this because this kind of like blood and run behavior with capital just like ballooned and destroyed crypto projects on a daily basis two years yeah. ago, you know, where all of a sudden something was $8 billion market cap and three days later you'd forgotten it exists. You know, like this is just the way that it, we've learned this. This is how that works. When you make money travel at the speed of light, you got to put some protections in place. Yeah. And, and it could have been as easy as, okay, X amount has, has come out in a short period of time, breaker, 
hey, Fed, we're going to get five times to 10 times more in the next hour. Can you help us out? Like, yeah. if you had, if any, if we would have extended this out to three working days, I don't think SVB goes under the way it did. Oh, I think if it started on a Monday instead of yeah, on, a Thursday, on a Thursday, I think, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it would have made all the difference. Yeah. And and look, it's it's also the interesting part about the uh, knock-on effects have been, I think people have woken up from the matrix, right? You you have the treasury department at each individual company that deposits their money there, wake up to the fact that maybe they could have gotten 400 basis points more elsewhere than they did <laughs> putting all their money, Right. They were caught sleeping, maybe, right? And again, that's because everybody's busy running a business. Or they were caught in SVB's terms and conditions. I mean, terms and conditions. My old old VC-backed firm in the late 90s, early 2000s was an SVB customer. And we had our, you know, all the same venture capitalists and lawyers and everybody else that everybody else did on Sand Hill Road. And we all signed the same covenants, which said we did all of our banking with SVB. In term in response in return for them being our liquidity provider when we needed cash, everybody signs that deal at every VC. Uh, frankly, at every bank in the world, you can't go to your local bank and ask for a loan and not which sign is a fine. Thing. Which is yeah. fine, and you need that for the float. I think a lot of people, and I know a lot of people, kept more than what they needed there because why not? It's a big bank. It's the 13th yeah. largest bank. It's fairly safe. It hasn't been a bank run in the next amount of years. But all, what you're seeing in the aftermath is the world waking up to the fact that they can what they don't need for payroll they can buy a money market fund or a t-bill and get that much more and and this is the like when people start pointing fingers the one thing where i have to sometimes just scratch my head a little bit is like you can still to this day go to the silicon valley bank website and click on corporate banking and cash sweep is the second item in the dang menu like this is not rocket science we invented this in the 80s no, you but it, but it's it's I guess you know it could have been a, a a lag of people getting no rates anywhere anyway that there wasn't a process in most of these people's uh, most of these companies treasuries to do that type of sweep right that they just completely forgot about it who knows but I think the general waking up of that has meant that even more de- like even even when you're doing that you're taking money out of the deposit from SVB and putting it somewhere else right like it's it's a security versus versus right. having cash on hand so you can keep it safe and. It'll still affect, it would still be a withdrawal I mean, from it. Don't we all do this with our bank accounts? I hope everybody listening to this does this with their personal <laughs> bank account. they do now. You keep some level of liquidity because, oh, you know, I want to have a couple months sitting there. I'm going to be able to like write a big check if something bad happens and anything extra goes into a different account. Every, literally every human being I know living at a sort of middle class life and above understands that there is liquid money that doesn't sit in their bank account. Usually it gets rotated off to Schwab or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think, I think it's, they're starting to do a lot more now than they were <laughs> three weeks ago. But Dave, let's, you know. Well, st- which goes to your, your, your complete uh, ref- refuting of what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's easy, right? Because there are a lot of villains in this, in this space. Whenever any story breaks. There's a lot of good characters and there's a lot of easy things that, yes, could have gone right. Like, And we haven't even mentioned Sam Bankman-Fried once, the power of narrative capture, right? We haven't even talked about how quickly that turned around, right? But it is it, it is an, an important thing to remember that, that like, broadly speaking, people are good and companies are trying to do their best. And there are things that they, they're really, really good at and there are things that they know they need to get to. And I think a lot of it has to do with like, you just give them enough time, they'll clean things up and other things will get worse. Like there, there is no perfect company. And if the right confluence of events all happen at once, 
then, you know, it's, it's an emergent phenomenon. You're going to get caught and you're going to be vilified. It's just the yeah, way it is. I agree. Right? Um, but, you know, all of this about speed actually want, brings me to the next topic, which is I remember talking and playing with ChatGPT a few months ago. Nobody cared about it. I remember watching a video on Real Vision TV about it and being like, oh, my God, this is going to be a real thing someday. And even in this video, in December of 2022, they were saying, you'll see this explode maybe in the next 12 to 18. Mm -hmm. And then what happened in January and February? Like, it, what an amazing explosion of advancement for the human race. Um, what are your thoughts on the speed of this and what its effects to humanity, the financial world, advisors, general help for society? Like what, where are your thoughts on, on the speed of this crazy vibe check on AI? Uh, here's my vibe check on AI. So um, I got a piece going up either today or tomorrow when we're recording this uh, on, on exactly this. Um, I, at, first of all, this is yet another thing where everybody on the Internet's going to pretend to be an expert overnight. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I try never, ever to do that. I have spent the last six to ten months in an AI rabbit hole, um, which led me down to all sorts of deficiencies in my own learning and made me relearn a bunch of math and dig into quantum computing and because all these things end up overlapping. But the long and short answer of it is, I think we massively overestimate um, the short-term impacts of things and we really underestimate the long-term impacts of things. Um, I don't think that what we see now live in the field, uh, you know, mid-journey image generation, uh, the deep fake technology we're seeing, you know, making fake easy videos, uh, you know, or chat GPT, I don't think any of those things is actually the end of the world for creators. That's a big myth that I think people are really leaning into right now. I, I feel like we've seen this rodeo so many times. Um, I tell a story in the piece today that, you know, I had a friend in college in 1984 who was using a, one of the first generation Macs to publish art at a gallery. And there, like people literally protested. They stood outside with signs saying computers aren't art. Now that seems ridiculous to us. Virtually yeah. every piece of visual art we have seen has been touched by a computer at this point, unless you go to a museum and see an actual oil painting on the wall. But I don't think any of us would say that people who happen to use a tablet to, uh, to manipulate a photo to create something beautiful, that those people aren't artists anymore. I think this is exactly the same thing. These are just tools. They're scary tools because folks at the bottom end of that creative ladder will get flushed 100%. Right. If your business is writing anonymous copy to report on news stories, yeah, you should probably be worried and go find something a little bit higher up in the system to be doing than just that. And maybe it's becoming the perfect chat GPT prompt engineer. I don't know. But I, I, those things don't worry me too much, nor do I worry too much about the Terminator Skynet takes over the world thing, because I think that's a massive misunderstanding of what these tools we've got in front of us are actually doing. If we want to posit a truly sentient, self-motivated, um, you know, with volition AI and whether or not we're ready for that, okay, fine, that's a lovely philosophical experiment, but we're actually very, very far away from that. Not because we lack the ingenuity to come up with it, because we don't even understand it in human beings. Like we don't understand consciousness and volition in humans. We could have a 20 hour, hour argument on free will and we wouldn't get anybody to agree with us. So how are we going to acknowledge when a machine develops free will and volition? So that sort of seems almost like a silly argument. I understand the need to have 
real thoughts about AI safety, but I think we should be focusing that the same way we think about OSHA, right? So like, what are the tools that industry is using and are they being used in a way that is safe, both for the people using them and for the environment that's going to consume the output of the product? That's workplace safety. We do that in every mm -hmm. other field, right? If you're going to, Caterpillar is going to come up with a new tractor, there are rules that it's learned, some of which are internal and not enforced by government, and some of them are enforced by government that allow them to produce a product that the world wants to use. I think we're going to be in the exact same place with ChatGPT6 or whatever, you know, the, the terminal model of that is. Um, and, and I think it's important, again, back to this issue of advisors kind of being out there paying attention. Advisors absolutely need how to, learn, to learn how to use these tools. If you're an advisor and you have not tried to have a financial planning conversation with ChatGPT, you're not doing your job because your clients are going to. And yeah. then they're going to turn around and say, well, I just went to ChatGPT and gave it all of my income and information and told them when I want to retire and told them my risk tolerance. And they gave me a pretty decent portfolio and told me to pay down my mortgage. Same <laughs> thing you told me. Well, guess what? That's not the ChatGPT becoming an advisor. That's you were a terrible advisor if that's what your client thinks they're do getting from you, right? Yeah. You should be fired if that's really what the client thinks your value is. So these things are, are developing so quickly and in real time, and they are going to disintermediate big chunks of financial services workflows. They already are. And so the, that shouldn't make you scared. That should make you excited because it means if you are early enough and early enough could be two years from now at this rate, because we adopt tech slow in this business, learn it early and you've got a force multiplier. I've been using ChatGPT as effectively as a virtual assistant for the last two months. It's changed yep. my life. 100%. Same Absolutely. Here. It's been, so paying attention is the key, the operative word. I remember having a similar argument with crypto with advisors where they're like, well, we wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I, as soon as a client brings it up, we need to, I, I immediately shut it down and tell them they shouldn't do it. And the answer to that is, well, you just don't want to learn it. You're not paying attention. And your clients are going to go and blow themselves up on their own. And they're going to take a lot of their money with them, right? So what you actually need to do is go deep, understand it, and provide them a risk-based allocation that is going to keep them entertained and not going to blow them up, where you can control the dialogue and keep them informed, right? It, I I know a lot of advisors who went hard on crypto who are who have gained clients during crypto winter, not because, you know, they magically made money when everybody else lost it, but because they were working with clients well enough to be able to say, hey, you want to do crypto? Great. We're going to put it at this regulated exchange. We're going to get this basket of currencies and projects and it's 2% of your portfolio and we're marking it to zero every time we think about it. And so consequently, when they've, what's happened in the last couple of months has happened, they were some of the first ones buying back in, right? All, yeah. And, right. and there's a, there was opportunity with something as 100, 150 vol, and you're making, you got two or three years of making 100%, 60%, and you're rebalancing that out. You're going to, you made your money. The rest yeah. is house money, right? So like there's, anyway, the point being that putting your head in the sand like an ostrich is not going to help, right? And, and right. chat GPT it's overwhelming. ChatGPT and everything. Uh, all the the uh, Doll E and uh, I can't remember the other. Midjourney, Mid Stable like, Diffusion. I remember talking yeah. about with my designer. I'm like, have you looked into Midjourney? We could create yeah. some wonderful things here. And he was like, well, are you are you looking to replace me with Midjourney? Serious conversation. <laughs> I'm like, no. no but I don't have time. Concern. I actually wait. I actually went through 20 minutes of a video with a, with a professional designer. 
that had dominated Midjourney and how to prompt him the right way. I tried to create the same image he did. I've been close. Not right? possible. It looked yeah. like a, a totally morphed uh, picture with different color eyes. It just it, it looked like a like a dolly painting rather than an actual design that mattered. You need people to to be able to express themselves in, in their own language, the way to prompt them correctly as a designer to make those images. Of course, he goes on, you know, has a weekend that's one of the wildest weekends of his life and comes back with better designs than he's ever. Right. Yeah. But but you had to kind of put people just don't like change. You have to push them into it. And advisors right. in that communication, that Friday communication, maybe they're not writers. Most advisors are not. They're good speakers. They may not have spent their lives writing. Write five bullet points and say, write this in a, in a grammatically correct uh, output. You get a nice little pod. I, I just I, think it, it just unlocks creativity. It's really, it, you know, like it, there's so many things that you couldn't possibly have thought about yourself that are in that knowledge base, in that large language model, that, that all you have to do is ask. And then suddenly, you know, maybe you thought of two of five things for a particular topic of discussion, but three more things came up in, in the response from ChatGPT. And all of a sudden now your, your world is opened up into, wow, I only had two ideas in my own thoughts that I could turn to, but now I've got five or now I've got 10. Now I've got a listicle that I can, you know, now I've got something I can actually work from. Yeah, so there's going to be a million of those examples, right? That yeah. Whether you're a dog walker and you're trying to find better routes, doesn't matter. Yeah. You're going to find ways to do it. But I think the important thing, like, for, again, as an advisor, if you're walking into this cold, tell yourself every time chat GPT doesn't, quote unquote, know anything. What yeah. chat GPT is a statistical model of salience connections between words. That's it. Now, it can look at a lot of words at once. Latest model is about 8,000. But what that means is it, it's, it doesn't go look something up. It looks at a word. It looks at all the context around that word, everything you questioned, everything it's already written, the sentence it's actually constructing and looking back at the words it already wrote and deciding what the next word is. That's yeah. all it's ever it's doing. Predictive. And I think we give it so much more credit than it actually has. But what that means is it's an incredible tool for working with language for me. Here, here, the live use case from an hour ago, I wrote this 2000 word piece on AI. I did not use AI to write it. I just wrote it the way I normally mm -hmm. wrote it. I did let it sit for a while, came back to it, did one edit, passed through, sent it to both my live editor and pasted it into ChatGPT. And I said, hey, ChatGPT, this is what I like to get in a developmental edit. Tell me where my typos are. Find any mis mismatches in tenses, verbs, gerunds, things like that, where, you know, I'm present tense in one part and past tense in another part because I screw that kind of stuff up all the time. Make sure that I'm consistent in my references so that if I use an example, I'm using it all the way through. That's what I want. Here's my 2000 words. It gave me back five bullet points of things to fix. My editor came back, had already fixed those five things <laughs> and had another five things that were much more like legitimate. Like, have you right. thought about moving this section up here and maybe adding a little bit more of this? And can you cut the fourth paragraph? It's garbage. So ChatGPT didn't do that. Because it doesn't know how to be a real editor, but it caught all the typos. It caught all of my vents, my verb tense mismatches. It saved my actual editor. If I, if he had been able to do that, would have saved him about half an hour. Yeah. Well, Dave, so you're, like, you're, you're an English speaking native, right? You can imagine what a poor Peruvian ESL <laughs> student, the torture that he's put his partners through over the years by sending them just garbage writing with, <laughs> with a nugget, with a nugget of a good idea. What's been beautiful about it is being able to save them a ton of time 
by writing whatever I think I'm writing in English and then translate this to actual English. It cleans it up. Then I send it to the partners to, to improve kind of the concept, the big the big yeah. level thinking of what I'm e trying to say. Even, even cooler. Um, and, yeah. and I recognize this is a, is a weird thing. And I know that you guys at Resolve have done some fun work on like training data sets and stuff like that. Yeah. Because I've been writing on the internet since the, since the beginning of the internet, all my stuff's in there. So yeah. you can actually have it write something as voice. me. Yeah. Um, awesome. And it will even go so far as to like, like I do common things like I make pop culture references and everything is always from the 90s. And like, like all my music tastes are always the same. It will make recommendations for song lyrics to put into a piece of mine that are a good <laughs> idea when I read them. That is so cool. And I did yeah. the, uh, when the piece that I wrote last week, uh, a bear's grasp, something with regard to managed futures and the, uh, the emotional journey during a bear market. Um, I realized that a lot of the people that follow me are, are like me. They let, they, they walk around listening to podcasts, right? So I'm like, how can I make this easy for people to listen to? So what I did is I dropped it, put it into a, one of these speechified type of things. And it was a perfect, perfectly articulated, uh, language in English. It was great. And I realized, well, I have a bunch of Spanish speakers. Mm -hmm. So I basically asked it to translate it into Spanish and it was, it translated the whole thing. I think I tweaked one or two things that needed to be anglicized to make it actually work. And then I realized, well, this voice is on this. People don't recognize this voice. What if we do it in my voice? So I went and I trained my voice for about half yeah. an hour and asked it to read it in my voice. It's uncanny. It's absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, it's the really voice, crazy. The <laughs> so now my audience can listen can read my stuff yeah. in my voice and I don't have to spend, you've done this before, trying to record it perfectly. So yeah, that yeah, yeah. Over and over and over Perfectly again. articulated. And you could have got, gotten voice. Kanye West to do it too, right? Uh, That's the cool thing. Is my speech of five voice is, is Snoop Dogg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? it's, it's, uh, it's, it really is. And as enthusiastic as we're all being about this, and I think that enthusiasm is warranted, I am terrified of the next election cycle. Oh, for sure. Like the the like we thought we had a fake news problem before. Oh yeah. Well, have you seen those like, Trump images? Or or the, or the Pope with the puppy jacket, which yeah. everybody bought. Everybody thought it was like, well, that's sort of a silly jacket. No, it was fake, right? And we all fell for it, and we're gonna keep falling for stuff. But I don't think that that means that we're not gonna trust anything anymore. I think what it means is we're gonna start paying a lot of attention to provenance all of a sudden. People are going to care that Rod or Pierre wrote an article yeah. specifically. And so, yeah, nobody's going to care who wrote the, you know, 200 word blurb telling you that, you know, you can get food at the cafeteria on next Tuesday, like that kind of stuff. Those jobs are going to go away. But when you want an opinion about, you know, you want a review of the latest album by somebody, or you want to hear whether or not the next Marvel movie is any good, or you want a book recommendation, or you want to get a restaurant recommendation you're going to start caring a lot about who wrote that restaurant recommendation because you're going to just assume if you can't see that person's name and find them that it's fake. But I'll, right. I will always also say that in the last five to 10 years, we've seen, we've ourselves, every one of us has fallen for it, especially in the beginning, right? You would just fall for it and then you'd retweet it without ever thinking about it twice. 100%. When was the last time you just retweeted something? Just like under five seconds. Yeah, maybe we right? get better. Now, I think we've like every one of us is like, wait, hold on. I'm actually going to get to the bottom of this. Where I've, I've been burned <laughs> once too many times, yeah. right? Where you get caught with a fake. 
Well, I think we, as, as I think you mentioned in your piece, this idea of we are going, we're going to have to keep on talking to each other. We're going to have to keep communicating. We're going to have to keep understanding what tool that we have is. And, and we do as human beings tend to create guardrails ourselves within our organizations, within government bodies that help steer us in the right direction over time. We, this is how we've survived this long, right? And I think, I think we're already good at being like, that doesn't seem quite right. Is, is, is Donald <laughs> right. Trump really running on the streets while getting arrested? Yeah. <laughs> Let me get right. to the bottom of this. I actually had to do that, right? So I think well, we're that's all the thing, right? at if... not being stupid, not being hood. Um, and hopefully we continue down that right path. I actually am very much a, uh, an optimist with a view that I got to be a realist as well, that it is going to be tough. It is going to be complicated. People are going to get hurt. This election cycle is going to be complicated because I don't think we've learned enough. I don't think we have the guardrails in place yet, but eventually we will, and hopefully we'll start finding an equilibrium. But again, it just speaks to the importance of paying attention to the right thing. I think you're, I think you're both right. I think it's going to force us to be far more, I mean, far more diligent and spending way more time on verification than, but, than, but, you know, we're maybe we're used to because it's worth it. It's worthwhile. It's, it's, it becomes a worthwhile endeavor. And even when you're using something like chat GPT, uh, to write something or to help you in, in writing, um, you're going to have to go through it and verify it as well, just because of the regenerative aspects as well. Right. Oh yeah. It's Talk a great liar. Yeah. Right? I mean, again, chat GPT doesn't know anything, right? All it's doing yeah. is creating the semantic web of probability. And so it will, and I've seen it do this, it will generate fake URLs all day long. You say, give me a URL for a video on this, and it will give you one. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere, and it never did, but it's giving you a likely answer based on other people asking similar questions before. So you, you do have to be careful about it. I think that... Um, we, we've, had, I, I we've, actually, had, we've had junior versions of this already, though. I mean, we just don't realize it because it's right there in the palm of our hands, but... If you were using an iPhone or, or, you know, Android as well to type something, you know, it was giving you words at the top of the that keyboard. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. To anticipate or to predict what word might come it's, next. So it's, the it's really improv, just the more advanced version of that, right? It's the greatest improv actor of all time. Yeah. It is just yeah. constantly yeah. riffing. Yeah. Yes. And yes. And yeah. all the yes time. And. Mad libs. I, and I think, but I think like, like improv such a great example for it because Improv only works because you have genuinely unique, talented individuals on the stage, right? Who bring something ineffable to it, right? Humor is like people ask the question. I w watch a Lex Friedman video uh, today um, where they asked a question of um, I think it's Sam Altman, who um, is the CEO of OpenAI, yep. and and he's sort of like, what would what would make you believe that you'd achieve true like sentience, not just global intelligence, but like actual sentience that this thing was actually conscious. And his answer was, if you didn't tell it anything about consciousness and then describe the experience of being consciousness and it said, oh, I totally get it, that would do it. And I was like, no, no, to me, it's, it's totally humor, right? If you can feed an AI a bunch of things that, it's, that have never been written before and it correctly guesses which ones are going to be laughed at by a live audience and then can yeah. in, conversely put together a tight 10 then I will believe we have achieved actual sentience. And if you, one of the things I've recognized about what, what anyway, GPT-4 and other, and other um, bots is that gets a lot of it right. But you're actually, if, if you are asking it tough questions about your area of expertise, 
you recognize how ignorant it can often be. Oh, it's a Dunning-Kruger right. machine and it a Yell-Man and machine. Exactly. So <laughs> I think this is why I think nobody, a lot of people lose their jobs. But broadly speaking, the world isn't losing their jobs here. What it's going to do is it's going to empower people that have a particular area of expertise, help them create, communicate significantly better, create better pieces that are going to resonate with more people and correct ChatGPT as it goes along and scratch things out. And right? And this is actually, we, we spent a lot of time on the sort of generative creative aspects of this from an economic and sort of human society standpoint, as much as that's the world I live in and love, it's sort of irrelevant for where this gets interesting. The plugin integration they did with ChatGPT allowed, I don't know you saw, it's Wolfram Alpha yeah. to create a direct connection. Yeah. Wolfram Alpha has become its own sort of artificial intelligence system for doing math and science. And it's particularly good at it. I spent a lot of time in it. And it, for folks who are like mathematicians, that is their job, Wolfram Alpha has become kind of like a math assistant. You can load in, you know, a set of equations and it'll calculate your derivatives and help you generate proofs and then help you graph your functions. And like, it's the world's best, you know, a grad student working for yeah. you as an intern. Um, connecting that to ChatGPT now starts creating really interesting uh, capabilities because something like Wolfram Alpha has been designed to be true. Right. It is designed to give you reliable, citable output that you could put into scientific papers and go test somewhere else. Right. So it, its generation was designed with truth in mind, with usability for science in mind, which is the opposite of what ChatGPT is. You start marrying those things together and you kind of can see how you create a feedback loop that just actually accelerates the development of knowledge. Yeah. And have you right? heard the, about right, Yeah, exactly. AI? The but, company Stability AI, do you know yeah. about them? I mean, their their mission is is quite brilliant, actually, because there's a couple things that make it complicated when you have ChatGPT. Number one, it was supposed to be open source, but now it's owned by a big company. The whole purpose was you don't want a few players to own it. You want to be able to be open, at least guardrailed, and if not guardrailed, open to everybody so that they can compete and learn with the rest of the elites, right? Um, Stability.ai has done two amazing things. Number one, it's been able to use compression technology so that you can grab the similar output or whatever knowledge base a ChatGPT has, condense it into a two gig file that you can drop in the middle of Latin America or Africa to give people without internet access the exact same output that you would up until when was it? Uh, September 2021. Wow. Um, That's fantastic. And so that is and their mission being, you know, you want to give, you, 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 we're opening up the Pandora's box, everybody's going to get the Pandora's box and we're going to figure out as we go along. The other thing specifically that they've done is language learning. When with one hour of working with the chat, the, the equivalent of their chat GPT, uh, for eight, in 18 months, uh, small villages in Africa have learned the English language in a faster rate than any other chat. So these are the things that all of a sudden open up the learning capabilities of the world. And you can imagine you know, beyond just being more creative, actually undereducated areas of the world having access in the palm of their hands without internet access to to all this knowledge that we have and, and accelerating their kind of emergence into this. That's that's an amazing thing. Um, so anyway, a lot of good stuff, a lot of scary stuff for sure. But yeah. uh, again, I'm with you, Dave. That we're gonna we're gonna keep on talking and we're gonna keep on navigating it and we're gonna figure it out as we go along for sure. And hope nothing explodes. And hope nothing explodes. <laughs> but but again, if you're worried about your, you I know, think I'm them telling out. you, what's that? 
Are we back? I'm 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 still here. I could hear yeah, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, I could hear. I think, I think yeah. it was you, Pierre. I was just saying that if um, if you think as an advisor that this is going to make you obsolete, it can if you don't pay attention. Uh, but I think it'll empower most advisors. To well, uh, you got to stay ahead of it. You have to, you know, or at least keep up with it, so that you, you know you're aware of where you stand. Yeah. And I also, you know, look, I talk to advisors all day and, uh, you know, most of what I hear from advisors is, yeah, I talk to my clients because I like, I talk to my clients, like they call me and we talk. And it's not that everything is a portfolio review. Their best clients, generally their wealthiest clients that they have the best hooks on are the ones who are going to call them on Tuesday at three o'clock while they're driving home from work being like, Hey, you know, what do you think about this stability AI thing? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they're in a half hour conversation <laughs> with their hundred yeah. million dollar client about something that they don't know anything about. I hear that story almost daily from financial advisors, yeah. the ones who are really on the street working with clients, you know? Yeah. But when you have a happy client who thinks that, that you're their ultimate sounding board, um, then you're doing your job. Exactly. You know, you're, you're fulfilling their role as an advisor. You know, I, I think, I think those, those those are some of the most fruitful conversations you can have in any relationship, but especially, you know, client to advisor, Hundred um, you know, that, that you're the person they think of calling when they have a question about something, you know, new or innovative or something they read, you know, they're calling you because they think you're keeping up with this stuff as right. well. Right. Better, they're not calling you because. Worse, better or worse, my group of friends are mostly lawyers. And I, I remember <laughs> I just, every day I kept, <laughs> I kept sending them like, you know, Twitter storms about how their job was going to be obsolete in a matter of days. Um, and it was all kind of menial stuff, right? And one of many back and forth, but one of my buddies says, look, if you think that I've, I'm making the big bucks because of some chatbot that can give the right answer, you're out of your mind. I'm an overpaid therapist for my big clients that are getting yeah. sued for that. It is not about, yeah. it's not about getting the right answer. It's about somebody holding their hand and making sure that they feel protected by the people that they've Right. So th these are yeah. all like the emotional and the, the connection and the, the relationship management. It's, it continues to be the, the operative thing. It's not going to be right. they can get better answers about how to create a portfolio. On no, it. but it's going to save paralegals a lot of time writing briefs. For sure. For sure it is. Yeah. No, they, it, yeah. They can, yeah, they can actually, bill for you know an hour what? and I, do 15 minutes of work, maybe. I, I, I asked ChatGPT uh, yesterday, actually, to write a non-disclosure agreement. And it, it did it in, you know, 15 seconds. Pretty good. Well, yeah, it didn't even have to, I didn't even have to fill in the blanks. I just had to say who the parties were and, and then, and then out it came, even at signing blocks at the end, everything. Right. So, so, um, you know, yeah, you're not going to need help, you know, right. with those standard sort of business documents, but you did definitely have to make sure, you know, but, but even when it is, did produce it, that it's correct. This is the thing that drives <laughs> me nuts is because you read this story, like people post those stories, like, look, I needed an NDA. It gave me one. Look, it yeah. passed the bar exam. It's like, if you were going to tell me you spent all this money designing a computer program, gave it the bar exam because yeah. it has every version that has ever been digitized in its semantic model yeah. and it failed the bar exam, then they should never release this thing to yeah, the public be because exactly. it has the answers, yeah. you know, it has the entire U.S. <laughs> legal code in its training database. You know, you know Fantastic. where I think one of the things that Diffusion AI is is kind of their niche area is going to be the issue of whenever you use chat gpt like I, I haven't put any sensitive information on it because it will then use that for their model in the future oh right? it, so, yeah and they tell yeah. you that right up front everything so you, you put in there is anything that client 
information can't be used at all, but software like um, Stability AI, where you can have it hardwired into your computer, that then you can feed your own models, everything you've written, uh, client information, it's not going to go out on the web. Specifically, even if you're running an asset management firm or a broker dealer, mm-hmm. and you can empower advisors by saying, listen, you're about to write a piece, okay, put it through this piece of software that has just do all the disclaimers and everything that I need to clean up before it goes to compliance so you can get it approved far, fairly quickly without 20 back and forth. That's an empowerment. Like I can see now you right. can, we can use this software, keep it private, make sure that we get all the disclaimers in every image and every picture and every word and every, every footnote, every reference in minutes so that then the compliance department can just do checkbox, you're yep. done in an hour, off to the races, right? So these are the these are the things that I feel optimistic about uh, in yeah. its use, and that'll, like totally. you said, in this business, that'll take a couple of years. But yeah, it does seem like something to look forward to. Well, yeah, I think initially it's kind of overwhelming what's possible, you know, and then trying to and then figuring out what to do with it. Sure, there's definitely companies that have been like Wolfram, for example, that you mentioned, Dave, that 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 have been, you know, that have connected their the new plugins. Uh, to what they're doing, but they've been waiting for it. It's not like they didn't know what to do with it. Oh, you know, it's like a hot potato now. Um, these companies have been waiting for the plugins to become available, for the APIs to be accessible, for all of that stuff to happen. And so as soon as it happens, you know, they're chomping at the bit for it. It's not, but but for the rest of us who aren't in the AI development world, you know, figuring out what to do or how to make some use of it that's that's commercial. Um, you know, commercially viable as a business, uh, is scalable. That's, that's a whole other ball game. And, and, you know, there's already people who are, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ahead on that because that's all they've been doing for the last decade. And, and, and now that these tools and plugins and APIs are becoming available, you know, they're ready to go to development, uh, you know, blueprint and, and, and make something of it. But for the rest of us, we sort of have to figure out what the best use of it is yeah. and, and, you know, how to make the, you know, how to, how to use it, how to leverage it. Agreed. Anyway, it's a fast moving world. It is indeed. <laughs> can't, uh, can't stay still. Uh, awesome. All right, gentlemen. Thanks, Thanks so much.